Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. All right, let's jump into the Word together. So <clears throat> I've got a, a friend, a ministry friend, who I talk to every week. We keep up. And he has this list of what he calls personal vocational values. Personal vocational values. Basically, they're the things he believes, and he reminds himself of these few things every day to keep him encouraged in this life of ministry. In fact, he's got them on a screensaver on his laptop. So every time he steps away to take a call or goes to a meeting or just, you know, leans back in his chair for a moment, he's reminded of what he is he most believes, of what it is he most believes. And I like all of them. They're really good. But the last one I like a lot, and it's this. It's partially plagiarized from Paul. This is it. Either Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, and God is making all things new, or I'm a fool who's wasting my life. How's that for encouragement, right? He should have just put kittens on his screensaver. That's not, not exactly an encouraging word. Either, either Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead and is making all things new, or I'm a fool who's wasting my life. The thing I love about that is that it pairs you know, these two most fundamental Christian beliefs. Not only that Jesus died and was raised, but that by that same power, the power of resurrection, God is making everything new. Everything. And indeed, at the end of Scripture, we find this, the one seated on the throne. This is Revelation 21. The one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. Now, this is good news. It's good news as I think about, you know, like the birds and the mountains and the trees and the rivers. And I, I do, I want everything to be made new by God. But you know what I most want to be made new is me. <laughs> You know, what we most hope is that God's going to make us new. And in response to that, Scripture just has this resounding blessing, this affirmation. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians. So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. All of these new things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Okay, that's good news, right? That's really good news. So all of this brings us back to the series that we started back a few months ago called Good News, where we're looking at the good news or gospel. It's the same word in scripture as we find it in the book of Mark. And it's a perfect series for this moment, this Christmas season where we're reflecting on the coming of Jesus Christ for us to think about what is it about Jesus that is so good. And it has something to do with the old and the new. Let me start with a case study to try to warm us up for Scripture this morning. Let's start with a case study. This is going to set the context, context for the passage we're going to read this morning. So you know that we have missionaries in Papua New Guinea. We've talked about them a number of times, Jab and Becky Mesa. They're watching today. They worship with us every Sunday. And so they lead the Melanesian Bible College, which trains preachers and ministers to go all over the country of Papua New Guinea, that island, over the mountains and rivers and valleys and jungles of Papua New Guinea, planting churches and tribes and villages all over that country. And in the 50 plus years we've supported that school, they've started hundreds of churches, 
converted thousands of people in Papua New Guinea. Okay, let me, let me give you a hypothetical example. This, this one isn't necessarily a true story, but it's one that I've heard repeated by Jav a number of times. I want you to imagine a young man in Papua New Guinea. He's grown up with a really expansive spiritual worldview. I mean, he grows up in a world where there are spirits and demons, all kind of forces all around him all the time. In fact, so much so that every day, he or someone from his family visits the local witch doctor in their tribe. They give that witch doctor something, some kind of sacrifice to keep the crops growing, uh, keep food on the table, to keep grandma healthy, okay? It's just, it's just part of life. It's just the air that he breathes. So one day he's walking down in his village and he hears this singing. It catches his ear. And he follows that singing to its source, and he finds this small group of people huddled together in a little house there. And he leans in, and after the singing, he hears this young preacher from Melanesian Bible College, and he's preaching about the power of God and Jesus Christ, the power to make all things, especially us, brand new. He likes the sound of that. Before he knows it, he finds himself walking down the aisle to the Papua New Guinean version of Just As I Am. And he's walking down walking down the aisle, and he gives himself to Jesus. He's baptized in this cool mountain stream right behind that little church, and he spends that day with this new faith family. He gets home late that night. He falls asleep, just filled with the spirit and the delight of new creation. He wakes up in the morning, and he prays. He's never prayed before, at least like this, and so he, he thinks this is what he's supposed to do, so he prays. He goes to work that day, and then on his way home, He's faced with a decision, but it's, it's so normal to him, he doesn't even realize it's a decision he's making. And the decision is, do I stop by the witch doctor today or not? And uh, he doesn't even really think about it. He just goes by the witch doctor. He leaves his deposit with the witch doctor, his gift, because that's what you do. That's the air that he breathes. And then he, he goes home and he gets up the next day again. He prays to God. He goes to work. He, Stops by the witch doctor on the way home and ends his night. Does that bother you? Does that trouble you for any reason? Let's come back to that. All right, let's, let's look at this passage in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. I want that to set the stage for this passage. Now, you'll remember over a month ago when we left off, right as we got up to Mark chapter 2, verse 18, that the story ends just before this with Jesus eating with Levi, tax collectors, and sinners. And the people watching this have all kinds of problems with Jesus eating with people like that. And so now we have another eating scene that really bothers some people who are around Jesus. So let's pick up, this is Mark 2 and verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees had a habit of fasting. Some people asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but yours, Jesus, don't? And Jesus said, the wedding guests can't fast while the groom is with them. As long as they have the groom with them, they can't fast. But the days will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast. No one sews a piece of new, unshrunk cloth on old clothes. Otherwise, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and makes a worse tear. And no one pours new wine into old leather wineskins. Otherwise, the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine would be lost, and the wineskins destroyed. But new wines for new wineskins. 
That was my son. I'm so glad he's here. I know that yell anywhere. Love that boy. Um, this passage is not actually about fasting. That's what it appears to be about. In fact, in my Bible, there's these little English subtitles over a lot of sections in your Bible. For the record, those aren't there in the original text. They're just there to help us read through our Bibles. And the one on this section of my Bible is called When to Fast. When to Fast. This is not answering the question of when to fast. And Jesus is not opposed to fasting, although you hear that it's, and it sounds like maybe Jesus doesn't want us to fast. And, and for the record, when I fast or when you fast, what we're doing is we're, we're taking a break from something, often it's food, and there's a lot of reasons to do it biblically. Uh, we fast to prepare ourselves to do something holy, to do something for the kingdom. We fast to intercede for someone. I know that many of you were fasting and praying for our brother, Tim Flatt, who we lost last week and celebrated his life this Friday. I know many of you were fasting as a way to intercede for that brother. Uh, we fast to you know, maybe purify ourselves if we find ourselves caught up in sin, to focus ourselves on God. Jesus himself fasts. Jesus is not opposed to fasting. This is not answering the question of when to fast. What, what this passage is doing is answering a much bigger question. And the question is, is Jesus doing something new? Or is Jesus going to fit into the existing religious framework, cultural framework of the day he was born into? Fasting. In this world, we've got the Pharisees and John's disciples asking Jesus why his disciples aren't fasting. Well, they're talking about certain days of the week when everybody in that world fasted, every Jew, okay? Certain holidays when every one of those Jews fasted. So this is just kind of a litmus test. It's a case study for whether or not Jesus is going to follow those rules and maybe tweak them just a little bit, maybe add to them just a little bit or if he's doing something totally new. Because Jesus, if you are not going to fast when the rest of us fast, then that makes us suspicious that you're not just kind of subtly tweaking the things we believe, the way we live, the things we practice. You're not just subtly tweaking them, but that you're doing something totally new and we don't know if we can buy that. We don't know if we're comfortable with that. So Jesus wants to speak into this and so he responds to what they've said and he uses two examples. He uses an example about patches on clothes, and an example about wine and wineskins. Now, the two examples are parallel. They're saying the same thing, so we're just going to focus on one of them. We're going to talk about the patches. What he says is you don't put a new patch on an old shirt or old clothes. You know, I don't sew. I don't know a lot about these things, but why not? Well, it's because the old clothes have already shrunk in the wash. If you put a new patch that hasn't shrunk yet on old clothes, when it gets washed, what's going to happen? The, the new patch is going to shrink. And it's going to rip away from the, the clothes you were just trying to repair. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you're not a, what is it, seamstress, a sewer? I don't know what you call most people. Uh, so maybe you don't do that a lot like me. So let me give you another example of patches. Here's what I think of when Jesus starts talking about patches. How many of you had a letter jacket in high school? How many of you had a letter jacket? Can I, see your, can I see your hands? How many of you had a letter jacket? Don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. Raise your hand proudly. How many of you had a letter jacket in high school? Okay. <clears throat> Jimmy Atkins, one of our elders, had a, had a letter jacket. All right. Okay. You, you remember in high school when you got that letter jacket? I mean, I'm, I'm talking theoretically. I never actually got one. Long story. 
there. Um, had an injury in sophomore year, so I did newspaper, which um, doesn't, you know, get you near the popularity points that like varsity quarterback gets you. Um, so I never got a letter jacket, but I, you know, they were a big deal in high school. It was a big deal to walk around with your letter jacket, with your school logo there. I mean, you wore it everywhere you went. You wanted people to know you were a big shot at your school, whether you were an athlete or you were in the band or something else. You wanted everybody to know you were kind of a big deal. And so as you accomplish things at school, you would get little patches. You would sew on the letter jacket. You remember this? You had this just sleeve of patches. You were all district in this, we're all region and that. The thing is, the patches didn't change the jacket itself. You know, you had to look closely at somebody to figure out all these kind of, you know, like qualifiers or, uh, you know, accomplishments, small accomplishments. But the jacket was really the source of identity. This person was a big deal at this school and you wore it all through high school. Now, now raise your hand again if you had a letter jacket. Will you just raise your hand? Okay. How many of you kept wearing your letter jacket when you went to college? Oh, yeah, that's a big no-no. Right, like if you, I mean, if you're one of our college kids right now and you're wearing your letter jacket at school, you can thank me afterwards for this. Like, do not do that, right? You don't, you don't go to college wearing your high school letter jacket. Oh, it's a big deal back in high school. Nobody cares about that. You don't do that's like, that's like having a big black thing in your tooth on a date, right? You want somebody to tell you, don't wear that letter jacket at college. Like, when you go to college, it's time to get a new jacket. Okay. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think he is saying, I am not a patch that you sew onto your existing jacket. Okay, my coming to this world, your embracing me as your savior and king means you need a totally new jacket, right? In fact, this is what Paul says. Instead, dress yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, take off the old, that's the context of this passage, and put on this whole new identity, this brand new jacket. Which brings us back to Papua New Guinea, and that example we started with in Papua New Guinea. Um, I'm not going to do a show of hands, but how many of you were uncomfortable with the idea of this brand new believer in Christ still visiting the local witch doctor? Doesn't that seem kind of wrong to you? What you want to say to that young man is, brother, like you are now in the hands of the most powerful force this world and the heavens have ever seen. Like you don't have to go give to this witch doctor who's gonna to appeal to lesser forces out there. You are in the hands of the power that is above all else, the power at whose feet God has placed every other power in the world. Like you don't have to go to the witch doctor anymore. You don't have to do that. What we call that back in preacher training school, back in seminary, the word for that is syncretism. Have you ever heard this word before? Syncretism. The idea is this is when people sync Christian faith with old ideas, other religious views, other worldviews, other cultural norms. They sync them together, and they all just become this kind of giant hodgepodge that may not be truly at this point authentically Christian anymore. And I can remember back in grad school, we would, we would think about cases in Asia or South America or Africa or places like Papua New Guinea like this, these kind of hypothetical scenarios the missionaries had run into on the field. And we would have these debates about, is this still Christian faith? If they're still doing these things. 
Or have they synced their faith with cultural practices or old ways of being that just don't, well, just don't measure up to the new thing Jesus is trying to do in them? And we've had all these, we would have all these hypothetical conversations in class about these places that were far away. And it was really easy to identify things that seemed like transgressions of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that seemed like, you know, this is kind of sinking too much. You've kind of gone too far. It was easy to see those things in other cultures that were not our own. And I can remember every time we would have this conversation, at the end of class, the missionary would say, okay, but can you see the syncretism in your own life? Because it's so much harder to see it when it's the air that you breathe. And then you begin to step back and you begin to ask yourself, you know, what are the ways that my culture, you know, the old ways of life that I've just been born into, the things that everybody does all around me, they're just norm, the things that everybody does. You know, how are those things influencing my, my faith? Influencing the way I'm following Jesus. You know, am I fully submitted to the new thing Jesus wants to do in me? Or, you know, am I still holding out for the old stuff too? A few verses later, Mark chapter 3, <clears throat> Jesus is accused of being in league with Satan. You remember this story? We're going to look at it in a couple weeks. He's accused of doing all of these powerful things because he must be getting his power from Satan. You remember what he says in response? He says, a kingdom divided against itself, a kingdom in civil war can't stand. A house that's divided will fall. And there's a, I mean, I think a really significant message there for the world that we're living in right now, for this country that we're living in and the division we're experiencing. But he's, he's not talking about nations at this moment. He's talking about persons. He's talking about individuals, a kingdom, myself. If I'm divided, I'll fall. And none of us want to be divided. You know, we do want to step back and we want to look at those things in our life that, you know, are coming from all kinds of sources, all these things that influence the decisions we make as we try to live our lives in the footsteps of Jesus. And we want to get rid of those other things so that we can follow Jesus fully, so that he can make us new like he longs to do. So what Jesus does at this moment, he does not go through a long list of all the ways that you and I kind of divide ourselves, that we sacrifice the new thing Jesus wants to do in us for old stuff. He doesn't go down a long list. Instead, what he does is he writes a prescription. It's like visiting the doctor. He figures out what's wrong with us, and this is wrong with me too. And he says, here's what I want you to do to fix it. Okay. I want you to party. I want you to party. Look what he says. <clears throat> this is in verse 19 of Mark chapter 2. Jesus said, The wedding guests can't fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. This is an awesome metaphor. In fact, this metaphor that Jesus uses for himself here is laced throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. We see it at the end of Ephesians. We're going to see it here in Revelation in just a second. It's the image of Jesus as the bridegroom coming to be with his bride, us, the church. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, even when we don't talk about it in that way. I know we celebrate this, this idea of, a, of a, a child being born in this manger so long ago, and we talked about that last week. 
But remember in Luke chapter 3, when the angels see that this child's been born, what do the angels do? They worship. They throw this big party. Why? Because God has come to be with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. What we see in Jesus in this child, what this child represents is a, is a marriage. It's the marriage of, of God and his people in Jesus. That's what Jesus represents. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying our whole lives take place in the context of a wedding. And in Jesus' world, like referring to a wedding was referring to the biggest possible party you could conceive of. I mean, weddings in Jesus' time, they would last for a week, okay? They'd be celebrating day and night during this wedding while the bridegroom is coming to be joined with his bride. The whole town, the whole community would celebrate for a week, so much so that you would be a fool if you planned your fasting to coincide with somebody's wedding. And you'd be like that guy on the side of the dance floor at the wedding. Everybody's out there dancing, having your fun, and you're just like, no, I don't do that. Nobody likes that guy, <laughs> right? You would be a fool to plan your fasting when there's feasting on the table. And Jesus is saying the context of our lives is this party that God has come to be with his bride, us, in Jesus Christ. That's the context. So we get a picture of this in Revelation. This is John. He, he gets to look through heaven's eyes at what's taking place on earth in the coming of Jesus. And this is what he says. Let us rejoice and be glad. Doesn't that sound like Christmas? Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Who's he talking about? You and me. Blessed are those who are invited to this party. And look what happens when he realizes he's at a party. I fell at his feet to worship. Worship God, he says. You know, this is the partying that Jesus has in mind. John falls down on his face to worship Jesus when he realizes he's at a party. And it's the party of the groom coming to be with his bride. And he's not going to sit on the sidelines and fast while a party like that's going on. He's going to feast. He's going to worship God because that's what God deserves. But it's not just what God deserves. Right? Now think about the context of this story here. The context is this idea of syncretism, of the ways that we're divided. And the prescription that Jesus offers for people who suffer from divided hearts is to worship is to party. I mean, we could go through a long list of all the things that you and I do that are kind of compromises on our singular faith and focus on Jesus, the ways we want to follow Jesus. But what Jesus does instead is he focuses on the prescription. This is what I want you to do. Not just because God deserves it, not just because I as king deserve your praise. I want you to worship because you need it. You know, you are what you love. You are what you celebrate. And if you want to let the division in your heart melt away, what you need to do is celebrate me. Worship me. Party with me. A young dad came back here a few weeks ago. It was his, his first time back since online worship started. And he came up to me after worship time, and he's just, his eyes were red and puffy. He had been crying. And I made fun of him, because y'all know I never cry. And uh, he came up to me, he was just, he was obviously been crying. And what he told me was, not that he had forgotten how much God deserved his worship, 
He had forgotten how much he needed to worship. I know that this online season has been a difficult season when it comes to worship. Um, I'm so thankful for Brescian and the praise team who have continued to lead us into God's throne room and worship each week. And, but I'll acknowledge when, when I was at home, like I sing terribly. I'm so self-conscious of that in the room. I love to be in a space where my singing's kind of drowned out in the worship of others. I know what it's like to be at home and to struggle with worship right now. Okay. I know that. But you need this. You need this. And so what I want to challenge you right now is we're about to turn to worship. What I want to challenge you is, okay, this time of feasting, and that's what this is that we're about to do. This time of feasting is the most important time of your week. When I come and I celebrate that Jesus has come to be with me, that he has come to marry his people, that he has come to join us to God, my response is to celebrate. And I don't want my celebration to look like fasting. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. I want to feast because he deserves it. You know, I want to pour my heart out. I want to lay myself down on the ground. I want to lift up my hands because this is a party. I mean, can you imagine how you would celebrate if your SEC team won the title? You'd be jumping up and down. You'd be yelling at the TV, right? I want you to celebrate because the greatest thing this world has ever seen has happened in Jesus Christ. You know, he has come to be with us, to be God with us, Emmanuel. He has married us and that deserves to be celebrated. And I'm going to celebrate him because I don't want to celebrate everything else in my life. My SEC team commitments don't compare to Jesus Christ. I want my whole life to reflect that I am worshiping him with everything I have. If this world's going to be changed, it's going to be changed by people whose hearts are not divided. That kind of kingdom cannot stand.